black GI? Is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the soul brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. Welcome back to Vietnam. Look what I found. Dirty man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. Hello, and welcome to the movie Robcast. So you may be able to hear that we are outside which must mean that I'm in the immediate vicinity of Mr. Rob Wallace, my delightful co-host. Yes, hello, I am here. He isn't losing it, or at least not on this occasion. Yeah, hello, uh, Rob Wallace. Pleasure to be here. And I was so overcome with excitement that I've actually said who I am. But you'll know that I am Rob Daniel, and we are on the South Bank today, standing next to the National Theatre. So... Well, we're standing between the National Theatre and the BFI which seems like a very apt place to stand, doesn't it? Yeah, between two grand institutions slowly going under. Yes. <laughs> Are you saying that's a metaphor for the podcast? Well, I least... flatter myself that I'm calling us two grand institutions. That's right. Yes, that's right. Exactly it. This is, um, this is going to be a slightly weird one because, of course, the last time we did this like this, out in the open, standing next to each other, was, I think, the 16th of March. So... Just going to move my face mask up there. So yeah, things have changed. So we're kind of a couple of meters away from each other. I'm so we're social distancing here, and we we're both rocking a Bane look. Although yours is much more Bane than mine. Yeah, mine's got like a mine's black and it's got a vent on the side of it. You just look like you've robbed someone's PPE. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm kind of like you're rocking the Charlie from Casualty look. Sorry, that was just amazing. Something just went clank underneath the the like. Oh, was that a tube train? Do you think? Normally, that, that I would like say something big moving. Well, normally I would say it's someone taking a delivery of stuff for the national or, or for the BFI, but not, well, they're not open. Alligators in the sewers. We're there. It's, it's it's happened. All the urban myths are true. We've now reached full blown. <laughs> We've gone full B movie, people. We are at full B movie. <laughs> we got alligators in the sewers, and uh, yes, we are in some kind of zombie apocalypse. And yes, we are kind of rocking a bane look. And yeah, we were talking a minute ago about um, about Tenet, obviously, that being the first big theatrical release that seems like it might actually make it into cinemas. Um, well, Mulan could be the week before, couldn't it? Because that's still yeah, in I for still the 24th. I mean, one hand, maybe a kid's movie is more likely because parents are going to want to take their kids out of the house. On the other hand, are they going to want to risk it? Absolutely. The whole thing here is really odd. I mean, um, obviously you know that Rob and I quite like our movies so therefore we're quite interested in seeing when we're going to be able to go back to the cinema but at the moment it looks like the cinemas well Cineworld have said they're opening up on the 10th moving my face mask up again and they'll open up with some classic movies Inception on the 10th anniversary with a sizzle reel of other Warner Brothers stuff before it to entice people back into the cinema I think The Empire Strikes Back is getting released 
but it's going to be Tenet, isn't it? I mean, that's the one yeah. that's going to really prove if people are comfortable going back to the cinema or not. But then Tenet has to be the only thing that uh, that actually plays to make any money. Yeah, because all the cinemas are going to presumably be half empty. I mean, I can actually, given that it's not like anything else is going to be getting released, I mean, anything that could have gone to VOD is, has gone to VOD. And yeah, you, you were talking about how you know Trolls World Tour and a couple of other films that went that went to P.O.D. might be getting some sort of theatrical. Um, but yeah, it's going to be Tenet. Or every screen can be Tenet, though. So Tenet better be good. <laughs> I mean, so far, Nolan hasn't made a bad film. I mean, this would be that would be. Sorry, I was about to say another level of tragedy as if that's comparable to anything else that's happened. It would be a shame if the first dud that he made was at this point, you know, the thing that was trying in position to get everybody back into cinemas. So, yeah, Chris, I don't mean to say that the future of the art form as we know it is resting on your shoulders, but wow, what is that a ban reversing? Sounds like it, doesn't it? But it sounds very close. I don't know where that's coming from. No, Critical it's really... reality failure. Critical reality failure. And then the sky just peels away like a piece of old wallpaper. That's right. So I think we're going full Truman Show here. Everyone stops and puts their hand to their ear and see if they're getting feedback. I, I was thinking full existence. I was thinking like... Yes. Yes, if the... Is that going to stop anytime soon, do we think? I think it is. It is. We have total reality failure well the sky has just split open and a dragon's come out of it so did that happen before lockdown i can't remember it looks, the dra dragon looks friendly i mean uh, it does all oh no no it's just it's just eating the kid another thing for 2020 <laughs> kid eating dragons well we might have to to relocate if this lovely lovely alarm doesn't stop oh it's changed it's changed nope it's back it's back oh there, there we go there we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs> At some point in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the five bloods. That might take second place to just the wonder and the uh, the danger of being out in the open. So we should be talking about the vast of night again, I suppose. But anyway. Yeah. So that that was that was really good fun. I mean, the fact that you know, I think we've adjusted to virtual podding. In fact, it's it's actual in-person podding that we're now having to figure out how to do again. That's right. This is all really weird and it's a bit too big and I don't... I'm just waiting for that lag to kick in. So I don't think, right, anything I say, he's going to no, hear a go. second later. No. Uh, no, no, you first. Sorry, mate. Oh, no, no. <laughs> the thing about that... Think, uh, sorry, I'll, You can edit it down so that's funny. After you. <laughs> it is funny, actually, because on the pod, when I listen back to it, you can sometimes very, very faintly hear the other person on one of the audio streams. And you can sometimes hear the lag of like, oh, that's when you actually start hearing me. It's about half a second after I actually said it. The wonder of Zencaster. So yeah, so we'll see about Tenet. We will see about Mulan. We'll see about the future of cinema and who's left standing after all this. Because I know one of the big chains might go down. And I don't want to be like a doomsayer, but you got to think that some of the indies are going to be um, well, slightly thing. worried. Some of the indies, I think, have managed... Well, you mean the indie chains? You mean sort of like the Curzon, or, or do you mean like indie, indie, indie studios? I suppose both, but the indie chains, but also just the independents like the Prince Charles, for example, which yeah, is that, just a single cinema. The, you know, the, the Prince Charles is the one I'm most... You know, obviously, it'd be a real shame to lose the be a shame to lose Curzon, it'd be a shame to lose pictures, but the Prince Charles, just because it's by itself such a feature of... 
sort of London, central London for me, mm. you know, and, well, and, and for you, obviously, you know, right off Leicester Square, proper flea pit, real atmosphere, you know, great retrospectives, really, you know, some good Q&As, I've had some wonderful evenings there, and the thought that that's just going to get swallowed up. Oh. So we're looking through a grate right now, I'm expecting a mole man to, uh, to drive, to be reversing a truck by or something, and uh, that's what this noise is. This just feels like the Austin Powers joke, where he takes forever to run over that henchman. <laughs> yes, it does, doesn't it? Oh, it stopped again. Yeah, so we'll see about the Prince Charles. Uh, we'll see about the others. We'll, I mean... We'll see about the London Film Festival this year. Yeah, I just don't see how that can happen. Sorry, guys, I just don't. It's um, You won't be able to get guests over. You won't be able to fill the cinemas. Uh, the Big Odeon on Leicester Square is about 800 or 900 seats now. You've only got half of that. By the time you've filled it with guests and whatnot, you're not going to have that many tickets to sell. I just don't see how it's a viable proposition this year. That's fine, just do it for the press. That's. <laughs> I was also thinking that it's like yeah, they will greatly reduce the press numbers. I think as well, even though that is a revenue generator. Um, so this will be the year when we see we lose. if all of the coverage we've given it over the past three years means anything. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll that, see. that would be again. There are there are scales of tragedy at work here but that would be a bit of a bitter pill to swallow it would be I mean it's um, but I mean yeah as I said I just don't see how it could actually happen anyway but we'll see I mean it's um, Fright Fest has been moved back from August to uh, to Halloween hopefully that will go ahead as well but we'll see I think there's just a lot of unknowns this year <laughs> the great unknown is everything <laughs> so yes indeed We've got the uh, got the sirens going again, and we've got we have we have indeed. Well, shall we start talking about the five bloods? Yeah, I think. Um, do you want to IMDb synopsis it? I'll. Uh... Oh, do you know what the, the 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 Google synopsis on this is perfectly fine. I've got them. Four African-American vets battle the forces of man in nature when they return to Vietnam, seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader and the gold fortune he helped them hide. That is word for word the IMDb as well, so I think one has copied and pasted from the other. But yeah, that that is essentially what happens in this film. So this is The Five Bloods. This is the new joint from Spike Lee. Uh, his next film after Black Landsman. We'll just wait for this guy with the trolley to go by. So I like that we've got a definite guerrilla filmmaking vibe to the pod today. It does feel... It does, doesn't it? It's like... It's given the five the five bloods. That's right, yes, we are out in the elements. We are basically having to deal with lots of uh, unforeseen obstacles like the guys in The Five Bloods. So yeah, this is the Spike Lee joint. This is his first film after he won his first competitive Oscar for Black Klansman. It is a Vietnam film, but it weaves in elements of Kelly's Heroes and Three Kings and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And is also absurdly topical. Like, the fact that Netflix released that when they did, and had apparently been on the release schedule for some time, was a bit astonishing. I, I'd, be, I'd be intrigued to know how well it's done. Obviously, Spike Lee is a massively recognised, you know, he's, he's a filmmaker, um, but on the other hand, you know, it is two and a half hours long. I got, I got, actually, the most impressive thing, I think, I got my folks to watch it. Okay, well, we'll get on to what they thought about it in just a second then, because... Now, I'm not going to weave any conspiracy theories here. All I'm going to say is, when we went into lockdown, it was the week that Netflix launched Tiger King, which 
was the weird, wonderful escape that everyone needed from the worry that was the COVID-19 pandemic. And Spike Lee, and now they've dropped a Spike Lee film, which directly ties in to Black Lives Matter and the African-American experience over the past 30 or 40 years. I mean, yeah, as you said, it is weirdly topical. But then again, the week before they did release The Last Days of American Crime, which could not have been less topical. What's that one about? It's a two and a half hour crime drama set in a world where the government's going to turn this signal on and basically means that it'll prevent people from committing crime. So the, uh, so this, a couple of like... Should we move? Yeah, we probably need to move. Aye, aye, aye. So we could go down to buy the IMAX. Yeah, we could do it down by the IMAX. That also feels... Actually, we could... <laughs> we could cinema this and do a walk and talk to the IMAX. We're now walking to the IMAX to get away from that horrible beeping. Yeah, it's the last days of American crime. It's like a sci-fi thing then. Yeah, but it's... I also think it's based on a comic book. It does absolutely nothing with the high concept. I, I don't know whether I did end up writing a review of it. That's how forgettable it is. Essentially, it's just a two and a half hour bloated crime thriller with nothing really to say. Everybody in it just feels a bit wasted. I mean... Edgar Ramirez is in the lead role okay. that I believe was originally intended for um, Sam Worthington, which might give you an idea of, of the level of ordinariness that it is. Uh, Michael Pitt's in it, sort of giving a performance. It's nice. just painfully generic, and it's a film that uh, oh, it does have a police officer kneeling on someone's neck at one point. Wow. Okay. So that's what I was thinking about. The Five Bloods is like, yeah, this seems really, really topical. Like weirdly topical in some points but then i was thinking well does it only seem topical because this stuff just never goes away yeah so in the states this is always a problem there is always this level of prejudice and racism so whenever you release this it's going to seem topical it's more topical now because of the protests that have sparked something around the world but i think there is an element of like no this is always going to be topical yeah and and if you say it does deal with kind of the African-American experience, particularly as it relates to Vietnam, but also like the ongoing legacy of... I, I just... It's, it's, it, the, the reductive word is to call it ambitious, but it certainly, it certainly is. I mean, again, it's a, it's a two and a half hour film grappling with some pretty big themes that, as you say, it would feel topical no matter when you released it, but now in particular... Yeah, so we are now at the IMAX. It's all locked up. The best screen in London. Yeah, so The Five Bloods has... Can you remember the name of the fourth guy? So we have Delroy Lindo, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and Clark Peters from The Wire. And there's a fourth guy in oh. there. Uh, oh, and... Norm Lewis. Norm Lewis. And then we also have Jonathan Majors, who plays Delroy Lindo's son, who's along for the ride. Who else is in it? Chadwick Boseman, of course. Uh, so Black Panther, who plays the fallen comrade that they go back to find his remains along with the gold. And I think one of the really interesting choices about it is that they don't de-age the actors in the flashback scenes. That's really interesting. There's, because Spike Lee, as he goes on, is more and more blurring or merging fiction filmmaking and documentary. And he's made some great documentaries. When the Levees Break? Yeah, so that's an absolutely astonishing documentary. When was that? That was 2005 or six, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was after Katrina, obviously. That's right, yeah. And he also made another one called Four Little Girls, which was about a bombing, um, a church bombing, I think in Alabama, 
during the 60s and four black girls died in that and he goes back and he basically like you know researches just just what happened there that is absolutely astonishing that is but now he's kind of uh, because black Klansman had uh, some elements of documentary to it as well wouldn't it so he would illustrate his point with some documentary footage um he seems to be much more like a polemicist now and this one i've not seen chirac but this one is really really polemical i mean you have the cutaways to trump rallies and stuff like that and you have and, and uh, the image of crispus attucks who was the first african-american he was killed at the uh, the boston massacre yes that's right and then you have like lots of archival footage from vietnam and i thought that worked really well i thought it's one of those things you, you've got these four great actors of a certain age they're not the age for the flashback scenes which i thought worked really well in terms of the aspect ratio changes so that it resembles more the um, news footage you would get from Vietnam at the time. This seems to be all about like your memory and how you you know, remember these things so it doesn't need to be realistic. It did take me a couple of minutes to get into the fact that he wasn't actually de-aging them though. Yeah, I think on one hand it means that means that immediately you're they're, they're more they're more just immediately identifiable because because of the the, the flashback structure is quite irregular, so you're jumping in and out of it at different sort of associative points. So it is immediately just used to be, okay, that's Del Lindo, that's... And the fact that it does change the aspect ratio as well, I think, is one of those things. It kind of always reminds you that you're watching a film, even though I did think that there was a lot about this film that was emotionally engaging. I, 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 like, I like how it homages... And also slyly kind of parodies a couple of like it's, it's got the it's got the shot from Apocalypse Now, just um, coming out of the sun. It does use Ride of the Valkyries, but on the other side, you you also see them on like this sort of I don't know the name, but it's sort of like a, a skiff, like a tugboat going along the river, and it's very much like obviously they booked it as kind of like a, a cruise that you can do, but that's obviously very much also in itself an Apocalypse Now reference. But Spike Lee said was a big influence, and you know, particularly uh, the Lawrence Fishburne character in that, but that he wanted to focus on the African. American experience instead of just having it be an aspect of the film. Yeah, indeed, and I think that worked really well. I mean, that was one of the things I thought worked really well about this, was like, yeah, the fact they were coming back after all this time, and you can see that Vietnam has embraced Western capitalism, so you have the KFC, you have the McDonald's, well, uh, you have an Apocalypse Now-themed bar. Yeah, in that bar that they're in, there's a, there's a bomb, that's a, or, or like, it's either a replica bomb or a decommissioned bomb hanging in the background of them when they're having those drinks. That's right, and I kind of, I mean, I've you know, been to Vietnam, but I can imagine that there is an element of that, that they will have um, commercialised the recent past. But the thing I thought was really, really go good about this film... It's like the Atrocity Museum, and, it's all, and, I, I've, and I'm pretty sure that's where they go, and I've been there. And it is very graphic. It's graphic in a way that I don't think you'd get in a British or like an American museum in terms of the images that they show. And it does. It really doesn't hold anything back. And they've also got demonstrations of all the different booby traps that they'd set, including images of the type of wounds that they would cause. So is it graphic in terms of what the Americans did to the Vietnamese people, or also what the Viet Cong did to the Vietnamese people? Yeah, it's fairly balanced on that on that front. I mean, obviously, it was you know, it's the American War. Yeah, and they... Obviously, America, you know, were there for many years. The war itself started in 1955 between the uh, between the People's Republic and the Republic, I think it is. I don't know the exact history of it, but of course, like, yeah, the war was also part of French colonialism when they... Which is quite neatly alluded to with uh, Jean Reno in this film, the casting of... Yeah, so we have Leon himself, Jean Reno, is a shady arms profiteer, isn't he? I mean, he's kind of like, yeah, he's a war profiteer, basically, but long after the war, but he's still making his money from gold that was there during the war, um, and you get the impression that he's done some arms deals before and things like that. And they do refer to it as the American War. And one of the things I really liked about the film was 
So in the Apocalypse Now bar, they're bought drinks by old members of the Viet Cong as an acknowledgement that they are both old, that they both adversaries, but things have changed. But as the film goes on, you also see that there are still scars on the people, on the ordinary people, that they have lost very close family and it still scarred their lives and that even though this was a long time ago the scars are still fresh the, the recurring sorry not theme it's all very literal but the idea of you know, landmines are, are something that crop up repeatedly throughout the film as being this thing that is still there's a child who's i think i think there's lost both legs sort of comes up and asks, asks them for money and that's clearly a victim of landmines of the of like the legacy of and there are three characters I need to I need to look them up in order to say the actors who play them one of them is, is of course Paul Walter Hauser yes that's right um, and is it Melanie, Melanie Thierry and Jasper Pakonen yes and Jasper Pakonen look is the spitting image of a young Michael Bean yeah I could I, yeah, I could, I, I could. I, at first I thought is that Michael Bean no he's too young but my god he looks like Michael Bean yeah and they basically play um, people that are clearing landmines so she owns a company that she's used her family fortune that was made in Vietnam and Indochina to clear these landmines and obviously she's French and the, the implication being and wasn't it that her they owned a plantation of some sort and it is the, the idea that she's renounced that always using that money what part of it she has towards this humanitarian effort as like a repentance yeah because her family made their fortune through rubber so they basically went over and took all the resources from the land but it's also of course about the fact that there was racism in america during the 60s there were the civil rights riots but then america did say to large swathes of the african-american community you now have to go and fight or you face jail far, far greater proportion and it was um, yeah so all the white kids were getting deferments to go to college and stuff like that and you've got Trump in some footage is referred to as President Fake Bone Spurs which is like so, he's not subtle because the Delroy Lindo character Paul is a Trump supporter yeah which was really good as well I thought one of the good things about Mike Lee is that he shows that it's not just white people that can be prejudiced so Delroy Lindo when he talks about yeah we have to get the immigrants out and then gets called up on it by the Clark Peters character What's his name again? Otis. Otis, the yeah. The one. Sort of, and, and I think the casting in this is brilliant. And just seeing these actors who, who are the sort of character actors getting lead roles. That's right. And it's one of those things that yeah, only in a Spike Lee film you're going to get these four actors together to head up this film, this two and a half hour I mean, epic. Whitlock Jr. is in it as one of the, one of the four. That's right. And he does say shit. He, do, well, he does the delivery, which Rob can just cut in here. Shit. <laughs> and having Chadwick Boseman play the idealised figure of their, their lost friend who was like their leader and they kind of talk with him about like he was the best of us yeah and he kind of reminded me I w it would be interesting to see if he was in any way kind of inspired by the Willem Dafoe character from Platoon yeah. yes because it's like he is the person who understands you know the bigger picture here he is the person that can lead them and one of the really good things about this is that it makes room for oh what's the name Hanoi is it is it Hanoi Hanna or someone like that? The yeah, the, uh, the propaganda uh, radio broad yeah, who used to go on and sort of talk to the African-American GIs. And, you know, what, and actually what she's saying is like, no, that sounds all sounds quite reasonable. It's like, well, it is. They, it's they learn about that, that MLK was assassinated from, oh, the, the implication from Hanoi Hanna. It's like, why are you here? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so they learn about the Martin Luther King assassination from her. She's she's brilliantly played by um, Veronica and Go. And I thought that was really good in terms of when she says about the Martin Luther King assassination and says, why are you doing this? Why don't you just rise up against your commanders because you've been brought 
over to this country they hate you over in america why are you doing this for them why are you dying for them but it's the Chadwick Boseman character who says, no, I'm not going to let you think in this way. We're not going to have our hate dictated to us by her. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is some good writing and they have got into some really good areas around this. Where I think the film... Sorry, go on. And, and another thing I just want to comment on quickly is the cinematography is astonishing. Like, I think they shot on 16mm. I think some of it was. I yeah, think that the flashbacks, the flashbacks were. were. Yeah, I think it's Thomas Newton Sigal who did Usual Suspects, Valkyrie... Like, he's basically worked with everybody. And he also did one that's very, very personal to this film. He did Three Kings. Of course. It's interesting, because Three Kings was dealing with the legacy of a war that was still... Attempting to deal with the legacy of a war that was still going on. Or that, you know, there was still we were still involved in Iraq at the time. Well, we're still involved in Iraq now. When the, the way that this film starts out, it, when they all kind of initially arrive back in Vietnam, and they meet up, and they're at a nice hotel, and they're kind of joking around, it almost feels like one of those kind of one last hurrah like kind of last vegas the bucket list a bunch of geriatrics get back together for like a bit of a light-hearted romp it really does doesn't it and it has and it's and it's kind of played like that it's very very humorous you do get the um sorry the paul character played by Daryl lindo has suffered from trauma since he got back from vietnam all those years ago so he has issues that do kind of like threaten the stability and then it gets more serious the more they go into the heart of darkness basically i mean it, you know as you said it's very very apocalypse now when they get onto that boat and go down the river and to be honest that's where the film i thought began to fail a little bit i mean i did like this film but it it had some issues and one of them was when it gets into Treasure of the Sierra Madre when they go and look for the gold and then the greed comes out and things like that and you start to get the distrust I thought even though they had a long time to lay the characterization, it still seemed very sudden it seemed a bit contrived it didn't seem particularly well earned in terms of like, like, like that was what the film was doing I didn't feel like that was the, what the film was setting out to do previously it was like essentially all of a sudden it turns into a genre film in a way that I didn't find as satisfying. Yeah, I agree with that, because I thought it was one of those where I was like, well, are you trying to say with this gold that this is like American gold, it was being used to pay the South Vietnamese forces, that basically the money that financed this war is going to corrupt whoever comes into contact with it, and even if it's these um, minority soldiers who were very, very hard done by in the war, and then when they got back to the world, it's even going to corrupt them all these years later. It's like, okay, well, that kind of works, but... In terms of how you're telling the story, it's, it's quite hectoring and it just seems a bit contrived. Well, I like the idea that what part of Paul's motivation for being a Trump supporter is, you know, partly he's dealing with trauma and the rest of it, but his attitude has been like, fuck you, what about mine? And kind of how Trump brings that out in people and encourages that in people, encourages a certain selfishness. And when it's coming from a place of genuine disenfranchisement, how that can be a very powerful and very toxic thing. So that is laid out, and I think it's kind of it's quite well set against the fact that he is in an African American group, so they've all kind of like yeah suffered the same kind of prejudice as him. But yeah, when he was beginning to freak out, it was like I I, I just get the impression you have to do this because of the story you want to tell, rather than it, it being a commentary on this character. Yeah, and, and at the end of it, the film does turn into an action movie, like a really well shot action movie. It does. But it just feels a bit disappointing. It just feels a bit like I feel like there's we could have gone further with these characters, and I feel like there was more to say and that the film kind of segues into less interesting territory. Particularly as, 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 of course, this is the second film... Sorry, the second war film that Spike Lee has made. So he made Miracle at St Anna in about 2007, I think. It was a World War II movie about a black regiment in World War II in Italy. And it kind of also includes this real-life massacre that happened in a church in Italy 
when the Nazis shot everyone. And again, it's, it's a long film. It's about two hours forty, and it's got lots of like you know, magical realist flourishes to it. But it's really interesting and really good. And even though it was really quite criticised at the time, I thought it was very consistent. And it's a really underseen movie. So hopefully, because of this film, yeah, Netflix might get that film. But this film, I didn't think was as consistently good as that one. Again, Netflix, especially at the moment, are kind of being the saviors of cinema <laughs> by yes. giving hugely talented, iconic filmmakers with track records and just saying yeah you want to make that film that you're not going to really get a chance to make anywhere else yeah here's the money to go and do that that's right and there were some quite amusing moments in there when it and there's one line in there that directly references the treasure of the Sierra Madre and it's so kind of so yeah it's one that as soon as you say it's like oh okay fine yep that's what we're doing now so outrageously on the nose that it's like well you have thrown me out the film for like a second but um, much more than the archival footage has but it's still a good line. I am going to laugh at it. And you're right, it is a good action scene at the end when they find that the war hasn't really left them and they've not really left the war because all their survival skills come back. So there's a lot of really, really good stuff in this film. I just think that it's um, it's overlong, but there's not enough time for character. And it has a lot of good stuff in it, but it does have some flaws around the structure. What I really liked was... Um, that he said, okay, right, so we can change aspect ratios now. You know, so audiences kind of understand that from seeing things like, you know, the Christopher Nolan films, when you get them on Blu-ray, they'll change the aspect ratio to try and repeat the IMAX experience. But here, I'm going to consciously shift. And when they go, so it's kind of in full widescreen, 2, 3, 5, when they're in the city. And then it goes to 16 mil, 4 by 3 for the flashback the sequences. First time they change the aspect ratio. They, they, they bring the aspect ratio in. It's not just a smooth cut. It's, it's, very, it's quite self... It's not self-conscious is the wrong word. It's very deliberate with it. It's, make, it's making a point, and it wants you to get the point. That's so right. it's like... It's, um, so, so, as I said, my mum and dad watched it with me. Yeah, I was just going to say, actually. Um, I will like, get onto that. But in terms of the use of aspect ratio, there's a really good bit when they start the proper expedition to find the Chadwick Boseman character and the gold. It goes from a black screen and then opens out to 185, but it seems like an IMAX 185. It just shows how big the jungle is. And I thought, yeah, this is really well shot and it's really interesting in terms of how you're shifting around with all these things. Anyway... um, so I believe that your mum and dad might have watched this with you. So what did they think of it? They actually really enjoyed it. And in a way that, you know, for example, if I'm thinking of a, of a film like The Irishman, if I think I had shown them The Irishman, they might have enjoyed that too, but they... I don't think they would have enjoyed it in the same way because this film gives you something... Imme- I know The Irishman is a gangster film, but The Irishman in its framing is, is immediately more elegiac. Yeah. Whereas I think with this, it, it, it does just... For better or worse, it does fully commit to being also being a Vietnam War film. It does, yeah. Um, and I, I think that they, my, dad, my dad was really impressed with how it was shot. I think they really liked the performances. I think at the point at the end where Delroy Lindo's losing it and kind of stumbling through the jungle and it's going to the, the, the Spike Lee dolly shot... Um, was when they started losing a little bit of interest just because for the most part I don't think depictions of madness are that interesting or actually that's you know I'm sure there are many 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 examples to prove me wrong but in a case where you've just got somebody that is like this he can say anything the script needs him to say at this point and make any thematic point that it doesn't need to come out of anywhere and obviously in this case you've grounded it because it's coming out of his PTSD and his trauma but it always just feels a bit artificial it, it did. Always just feel like, and again, Del Rolindo is great, but it always just feels a bit acting. It just feels... 
it does feel like an improv session, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't think a lot of that was actually scripted. I think they gave him things to talk around. I mean, he does have one really, really good line when, because um, he, you know, he's got really, really paranoid, and he says, "What is it? I'm getting fucked with salt in the Vaseline or something like that." And I thought. <laughs> Wow, that's a good line he then says it about a million times afterwards and it's like this just seems like an improv session and it also seems like you are deliberately just kind of saying the text or like yeah the subtext so that's just become text now it also seemed a bit indulgent in terms of how long it went on for as well I think that the point was made quite early on with that because Daryl Lindo's a very good actor yeah I thought that was like just an example of one of the problems of the film there is also a scene where someone steps on a landmine and blows up and then you see them afterwards and they're still alive but it just reminded me of Mr. Creosote from The Meaning of Life is this real head um, sticking out of a exploded body and it's like I'm sorry that is unintentionally funnier than it should be I don't think it should be funny at all but it does look a bit silly and it's like I'm sure this is probably authentic this is probably actually how it would look but because we have that reference point and because it is so extreme that the mind goes to places of comedy because it's like oh no that is unendurably horrible that's that's not yeah but it's also kind of weirdly played he's had a massive rant and he stepped backwards and backwards and backwards so you think something's going to happen i thought that he was going to get got by a snake Oh no, I, I, he you, actually, I, I thought it was going to be Landmine. Because uh, you've got his son at one point. You've got his, uh, sorry, you've got um, Paul's son in it, who's played by um, Jonathan Majors. Yeah, Jonathan Majors, um, who, who's sort of back, who's basically gone down the hillside to take a shit. And at that point, I was like, are they, is this, when we're going to do this now? Are we doing the grenade, we're we doing the Landmine bit now? Because I know, that I knew you kind of, but I think the film diffuses, diffuses it really cleverly at that point because he doesn't find the Landmine. In fact, he finds something else. And then from that whole point on, they stop being, they, they start, the characters are being very uncautious in an area where you're aware they should probably be more cautious. And they're looking for the gold, obviously. And every time they look, every time they think they found, like, it's one of those things that they keep on pushing back and pushing back. And you know that, and the audience, I think, is quite aware. They know, you know, you know there are landmines in this area and you know that at some point a landmine is going to come into play. And it's quite clever because it keeps on just, it builds the tension. It, 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 it keeps on building and then diffusing the tension by like, oh, is this it? No, is this it? No, is this it? No. But at that point when that character starts walking backwards, it's like, yeah, it's just now. It's just now. They are. You do not have a character like ranting or moving backwards. It's you know again. It's Samuel L. Jackson in um, in Deep Blue Sea. It it's is, like, and that's the thing is it's that like, it's one of those things, like I think that sort of now primes you for like a yeah. Someone's going for a massive rant. They're in an area where we know something is dangerous. They're they're gone. And it is played as like a comedy scene, and that is yeah traditionally a comedic moment. So then when you see him and he looks like Mr. Creosote after he's eaten the final Wafferthin mint, it's like yeah this the tone of this hasn't really worked. I thought it was going to be a snake because friend of the podcast Adrian Zach did a wonderful bit of public service and said there are a couple of snake moments in this, and it was the one time I didn't mind spoilers. He he basically told me where they were because I don't like snakes and. Um, he said, yeah, so one's in a market, so I kind of like, yeah, you'd be wary then. For about the final 20-odd minutes of the film until it happened, I was just hyper alert that there was going to be a snake attack at some point. So that point when he's walking back, I thought it was going to be a bit like Jumanji and a snake was going to come by him on the head. But, and completely missed the fact that obviously it's going to be a landmine. And did you actually get the snake bit before it happened? Because I don't think... Did you actually get it? 
I did because it was one of these things where I thought it has to be here because the way this character has positioned himself this is prime snake territory so therefore I know to kind of half watch the film here because I didn't want to have like an apocalypto moment where I completely let my guard down and then when the snake attack happens late in the film in trying to put my hands to my face I actually punched my lip and my hand kind of like you yeah, banged off my forehead so it's like my god I'm self-harming because of this bloody film so I was very aware of that despite, despite what we're saying I did find some moments in the final act genuinely you know to do with forgiveness and to do with I th- genuinely moving and again I think that's just because Spike Lee is a very talented filmmaker working with some very talented actors and so there were still things that rang true I just wish those had been the things the film had focused on. Yeah, indeed. I didn't think it really needed to go into Kelly's Heroes, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Three Kings Territory as much as it did. I would have been much, much more interested if they'd have you know, just played it as a drama. I think, but I think maybe that's the danger when, you know, Spike Lee obviously knows his cinema. And I guess he's probably thinking, well, this is the only, you know, these are all things that I'm interested in and want to get in this film. Like, I'd be interested to see what came first, the Three Kings influence or the Treasure of the Sierra Madre influence. And, and, and you know, at what point you, you end up kind of riffing on those things. Yeah. And, and it's like, I'm making this film, I want to get all this stuff in it, Netflix have given me the money, two, it's two and a half hours long. Well, I don't think he wrote the original screenplay. I don't think it was an original... Yeah, that's right. It does seem to be based on so there are four writers and I think it's one of those things where there was an original screenplay that was written by the first two and then he I can't remember the name of the other writer but he's got a regular collaborator and I think they they must have done a pass Danny Wilson and Paul Medeo so they were the original writers and then there was there's there's another guy who's the Spike Lee collaborator um, uh, uh, Kevin Wilmot I think Yes, that's right. Um, I would be interested to see if the film's original script was a treatise on race, or whether or not it was just saying we've got a group of Vietnam vets who go back to Vietnam to uncover, to, you know, whether it was the body or whether it was the gold, and at what point all these different elements came in. I think you might be right. I'm because this. Sorry, just wait for that to end. It sounds like a chocolate, doesn't it? It does. It does. I think we've we've got incoming <laughs> so uh, it sounds it's a motorbike but it sounds a bit like a helicopter down here um so we've got the sinister man on a bike still watching us and the sound of a helicopter yeah there is a guy on a who's on a bike under the tunnel at the imax he's been standing there for about 20 minutes now just kind of like yeah watching us so because he's standing there like michael from halloween or something so welcome to the world outside. It's much more terrifying than you remember. Anyway, I think you're right. I think that because the original script, because this could have worked, the basic premise could have worked with a mixed white and black actors. It doesn't need to be about race. Maybe, again, this is just my, maybe the Treasure of the Sierra Madre stuff is a holdover from an earlier version of the script that wasn't attempting to deal with other themes. Where it was just a bunch of Vietnam vets, go back to Vietnam, look for the gold, we kind of touch on, you know, the, uh, the, the enduring, the legacy of, you know, of colonialism, and then we do the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And it feels like the script is, again, we're going back to the word ambitious, kind of too ambitious in terms of what it's trying to pack in there. And it, yeah. I think you're right. I think it's one of those things that it would have been a much more straight adventure movie. Um, yeah, with like, yeah, maybe a touch of um, commentary in there. And then I think that Spike Lee would have said, actually, no, there's much more we can put in here. And this is like, yeah, complete speculation, but it's much more interesting if we make them all African-American. Um, and then it becomes a big commentary on race over the past 40 years. And... It opens with a montage. 
it opens with a montage of you know when Muhammad Ali when he refused the draft, and and Kent St- and and things like uh, the moon landing and Kent State, and looking at this kind of broad sort of swathe of history, and then tracking that forward to the present day. The first half of it, I was watching it thinking, yeah, this is probably my film of the year. Wow. Okay. I mean, in all fairness, it's been an interesting <laughs> year when it comes to film. I know there are lots of films that I still need to watch that I've you know. Um, but yeah, the second half was like, okay, maybe not, but this is still really impressive. This is still a really impressive piece of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I'd agree with that. I think it's flawed, but it's, yeah, but with Spitely, you're always going to get something interesting. Another little bit of public service announcement from Adrian is um, State to the End. There is um, a scene at the end of the film after the credits, which is really, really sweet. So I won't spoil it here, but it did make me smile. So if you have seen the film and you turned off the credits, then it's worth going back just to have a quick look at what happens after the end of the credits. I turned it off. I have not seen the scene that you're talking about. I will make a point of watching it. Cool. Is there anything else to say? I think that's. I think I'm done. Yeah, so um, this has been fun, even with that guy over there. It's also the fact that he's just standing in silhouette. It's like shadow under the tunnel, just staring. And it's like, anyway, any more for any more. I think that's me. I think that's me as well. So, as always, thank you for listening, and we will speak to you again very, very soon. Thank you very much for listening. So that music you can hear is the reason why we had an audience of one for the podcast watching us record. Apparently every Sunday that chap comes to practice music. What is it that he's playing? Yes, he comes, he comes to basically stand in the vicinity, in the kind of the circular area surrounding the, uh, the, the IMAX and play his flute. Sounded like a flute, didn't it? But he didn't want to interrupt us. So it was actually really nice. It was actually came, he came up afterwards and was like, oh, you know, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. I come here and play my music. And it's like, oh, actually, okay, that's the thing we thought was sinister is actually quite nice. Yes, indeed. But it was sinister when he was standing there for 20 minutes. Just staring. Motionless, at just staring at us. <laughs> anyway, so we thought we'd give a little um, answer to the mystery of why we had someone staring at us for the final 20 minutes of that record. Um, Anyway, so yes, we will talk to you again very, very soon. Over Zencaster again, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, seems likely. Yes, okay then. Speed to you soon.